Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. Hey, uh, do we have something really solid we could talk about? Like something that really kind of rocks? Solid like a rock? Is that the, is that the pun you're going for? I, I've been trying to think of a good pun for, I mean, you can attest you've been sitting on the line waiting for me, and I just can't think of a good thing. But um, rock, that's what we're going to talk about. Rock curves. Yes, you are listening to Linear Digressions. So rock curves have nothing to do with actual rocks. No, ROC is actually R-O-C. It's an acronym. And the story of the acronym, I think, is worth telling. And it actually explains what a ROC curve is, if this is something that you're not familiar with. So the idea of a ROC curve is it's a way that you can assess how good a predictive model is for making, especially, that's my dog, um, <laughs> how good a, a model is for making, uh, especially like binary predictions. Like think of a binary classifier is, is the classic example that I'm going to use here. Right. So you're going, your algorithm's going through and it's, it's maybe looking at this and that and the other. And for each one of these things, its output is one or zero, true or false, yes or no. Not somewhere in between, not like eh, kind of in between. Uh, it's going to be one or the other. Right. Although we're going to come back to this eh, kind of in between here in a minute. But mm-hmm. uh, so the idea is we have a uh, we have this classifier. It's making predictions. And each time it predicts, let's say, a one, we'll call that the case a, a positive example, a positive prediction. And each time it predicts a zero, we'll say that's a negative. But a really interesting question, in my opinion, is how do we decide sort of like where the cutoff point is between ones and zeros? Then so let me let me tell you where this where this metric comes from as an illustration of this point. So ROC stands for receiver operator characteristic, I believe. And this actually That's catchy. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, <laughs> so receiver operator characteristic, what on earth is that talking about? Receiver so, receiver operator characteristic. Yeah. That's so what like I usually see it as, yeah. The operator of a receiver it is. It's a characteristic that describes the operator of a receiver. In this particular case, the receiver was actually a person. It's not a uh. computer program or an algorithm. Uh, so imagine the scenario is World War II, uh, because it was. <laughs> and the situation is that you are running radar scans of the sky for military purposes. Mm-hmm. So there are planes that are potentially you know, coming your way from the enemy. There's also things like flocks of birds and random noise. Right. And so there, and uh-huh. A great way of doing signal processing back in that day was to put a bunch of humans in front of these displays and say, hey, look for patterns. Exactly. Yeah. So you have all these radar stations that are running. They're giving some output to a screen. You stick a person in front of the screen. And that person's job is basically to say for every time there's a blip that comes up, uh, is this an enemy plane or is this a flock of geese? And it's so think of a job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So these are the receiver operators or these people who sit in front of the screens. For some people, uh, some people are kind of uh, nervous and they're uh, a little bit trigger happy in the sense that every time they see a blip of any size whatsoever, of any shape whatsoever, they say mm. enemy aircraft. Hey, it might be a plane, might be a plane, might be right. a plane. And so for these people, we would say that like the threshold at which they flag something is very, very low. And so what that means is that 
every time there's an enemy plane, they're doing a really good job where every time there's an enemy plane, they're flagging it. Yeah, they um, always get the enemy planes because they're also getting all the tiny things too. Because they're, yeah, they're just flagging everything. Um, so this is one extreme. So you get all the enemy planes and on the one hand, that's really great. On the other hand, there's sort of all this noise that gets mixed in with their predictions because they also have a very high false positive rate. So there's a high probability when they flag something as being potentially an airplane that it's not and we'll call that a false positive right so false positive is hey i see something oh wait i was wrong right and then uh would you call it a true positive so a true positive is when you actually flag something and then it turns out to be right uh, yeah and it turns out to actually be an airplane right so you want your you want true positives because that's you being successful, basically, in, in, in uh, identifying the enemy plane or whatever it is. And then you've also got the true negatives and false negatives. Well, so we actually ignore those for, for the purposes oh, we just, so, of... Okay. Yeah, so uh, in this case, like, a negative isn't really that interesting because... It's we, like the absence of saying yeah, something. Yeah, it's kind of like so, the, the null case. So this is this is one of the, like, biases that, that rock curves have is they're kind of treating positives as being special with respect to negatives, but... That's okay, because right. a lot of times, you know, you're more interested in one of the classes than in the other one. Right. So in this example, if I just totally miss an enemy aircraft, that doesn't count in my rock score. That would be called, yeah, that would be a false negative. And yeah, I think that that a rock score would not be particularly, that would not be a great metric for trying to assess yeah. <laughs> how often that happens. Okay. <laughs> so, so true positives, false positives. True positive, false positives. And so you can have the people who just flag everything. So they have a very high true positive rate. They also have a very high false positive rate. And then there's also people who, let's say, are very reluctant to flag anything, or they're asleep, or they're not paying very close attention or whatever. (laughs) And so they rarely flag anything at all. And so they have uh, a very low they have a very low false positive rate. They're not flagging birds or clouds. Uh, they also have a very low true positive rate as well. They're maybe not doing a particularly effective job at seeing airplanes. Mm, got it. So you've got these two uh, operators on either end of the spectrum, and then you've got a whole bunch of people in between who are uh, a little more on the trigger happy side or a little less on the trigger happy side. Right. And so the idea is that you can actually sketch out kind of a, if you have a chance to take enough data for every possible threshold uh, of where a person might be, so sort of how trigger happy they are, how how much they see, you know, things that may or may not be there, that you can find data for sort of each of the points along that spectrum, or for enough of the points that you can, you know, do some like interpolation or something, and you can make you can make a smooth curve that goes between sort of these two extremes that we've just talked about. If you have not particularly effective receiver operators, then what what defines an ineffective receiver operator in this context is that they're not doing any better than random guessing at what's actually mm. an airplane versus what's a flock of birds. Because let's suppose for the purposes here of, of the example, and in real life also, uh, that there's maybe some small hints in like the the shape or the speed or other characteristics of the object mm-hmm. that they were looking at. So it's realistic to think that a very good receiver operator would be able to tell the difference between an airplane and a flock of birds and would be more likely to flag an airplane than they were to flag a, a flock of birds. Interesting. So I'm, I'm kind of picturing this graph in my head uh, that represents this where you've got 
along the two axes, along X and Y, you've got your po- uh, your uh, false positive and you've got your true positive. Yeah. And for your operator that's basically asleep or just extremely conservative and really doesn't flag anything, their false positive and true positive rates are very, very low. Let's just say zero, right? Yeah. And then for the guy that's super trigger happy or the gal, that person is going to be flagging a ton of false positives and also false uh excuse me, true positives, right? So they're going to be all the way to the upper right. Yep. And all the people in between are kind of going to form a a line where they're getting some number of true positives and some number of false positives. And if it's random guessing that I imagine that that line would be basically straight. Like if if you say random guessing is, uh, is the same number of true positives as false positives. Yeah, that's right. So if there's somebody who's just sitting there flipping a coin and using that to decide what to flag and what not to flag, then the ROC curve that you're going to trace out with a bunch of people like that is just going to fall along that diagonal that connects the point zero zero to one one. And then we can say that the area under that curve, if we were to shade in sort of that triangle, would have an area of 0.5. And that's that's a number that characterizes uh, basically for that individual uh, the, f- the fact that they're randomly guessing. And what you want to have is you want to have people who have a higher true positive rate than they have false positive rate. And what that looks like when you draw an ROC curve is that instead of having that straight line between 0, 0, and 1, 1, you have something that kind of bows outward. And the further outward it bows, the more you have um, people making more good guesses, more true positives than they are false positives. There's like a bigger and bigger differential between those two rates. And the way that that can get interpreted into like a single number is that then the area under that curve, instead of it being just a triangle like it was before, it now has a bigger area. And in fact, Mm. if you have a perfect model, like someone who's always able to get every single enemy aircraft without ever flagging a flock of geese. Even the sleeping person. (laughs) Right. Then the ROC curve that would that would characterize a person like that, or in the case of a machine learning model, a machine learning model that always gets 100% of its predictions correct, then the perfect AUC curve is one. Uh, and so AUC stands for area under the curve. So the perfect AUC is one, uh, random guessing is 0.5. And then in between those two, depending on what the area under that curve is, you know, the, the closer that it is to one, the better the model is doing. Interesting. And if you happen to get an AUC score of less than 0.5, then you know that you're doing really, really badly because you are literally performing worse than random guessing. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And in fact, actually, if you get that, then you should just take your model and do exactly the opposite of what it says, because then you would be doing better than random guessing. Uh, Yeah, probably. Although if you've ended up below the AUC curve, like usually, (laughs) usually there's a bug. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Got it. So here are some of the things that I, I like about the AUC as a metric. Um, I think it's it's one of the better metrics on the market when you're building a classifier. Uh, and there are a few reasons why. So the first one is that for something like accuracy, so accuracy is another good metric. And accuracy is going to say, how many examples did you get correct over how many examples did you classify overall? And one of the things about accuracy, though, is that the, the AUC is taken as kind of a summation of the performance over many different thresholds that you might be interested in considering. Accuracy, usually you have to pick a threshold, like usually by default, it'll say 50%. And so if we think that 
there's above a 50% chance of a, of a case being like a one, then we assign it to one. And if it's below 50%, then it's a zero or whatever. But not always is it the case that 50% is a threshold that makes a lot of sense. So an example of this might be something like, uh, let's say you're doing uh, fraud detection. So in the case of fraud detection, fraud is very, very rare. And so for any given transaction, you might not have more than like a few percent chance that it's fraud. But let's say that the difference between a 1% chance that a transaction is fraud and a 10% chance that it's fraud, that's actually a really big difference. And with a 10% chance, maybe that's a big enough chance that you might want to flag it. Um, by default, a lot of algorithms wouldn't necessarily say that something with a 10% chance you know, goes into the, the category of like, let's, let's call this, a, let's flag this transaction or whatever. Um, so that's one of the things that can be not great about accuracies. It kind of like assumes a threshold and then unless you do some like fancy footwork, you don't necessarily know how well your model would be doing at other thresholds. Interesting. And uh, like you like you mentioned before, the advantage of this is that it's kind of measuring all of these thresholds. So uh, in our previous example, the thresholds were all the different people with the different sensitivities. Yep. And then one of the other things that's not great about accuracy is that, uh, again, let's take the case of where you have kind of imbalanced classes. So let's say you're, you're looking at fraud again, and let's say that 99% of cases are of transactions that you see are not fraud. In fact, I would bet it's even higher than 99%. Let's say it's like 99.9% or 99.99. Then it's really easy to end up in a spot where your classifier is just always saying this is not fraud. And in fairness, that's a totally reasonable thing for it to say because it's almost always going to be right. The thing about it though, is that then it's really easy to look. So imagine your classifier is really not doing any thinking. It's just always saying not fraud, not fraud, not fraud. And then you say like, okay, well, what's the accuracy of, of a model that's making just constant predictions of not fraud? Well, the accuracy of that model now is going to be like 99.999%, which is going to make you feel like you've just accomplished something really amazing, but you really haven't. <laughs> Um, so that's one of the other things that that the AUC like the AUC curve will uh, tell you a little bit more faithfully in cases like that that there's a model that you've built that isn't isn't really doing anything that's that's particularly intelligent. The AUC curve for that model won't look particularly good, but even if the accuracy looks like it's amazing. So the question that's come up in my head, which may be for the next episode, since uh, this episode's getting a little long, is what can go wrong with using the uh, AUC and the rock curve. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of things that an AUC is not particularly good at handling. It's a meaty enough topic that, yeah, let's leave leave our listeners in suspense for another week. Oh, God. Horrible. Horrible. Oh, come on, Unless Ben. You're... We're going we're gonna to immediately record the next episode. You only have to wait like three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Linear Digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.